Hello, everybody. Welcome to Bella Hootman's Curse. This is one of our uh, kind of interstices pod. And uh, Steve has got a fantastic pod prepared for you today. It's kind of the response to my uh, pod of last week where I talked about total football. Steve will be kind of referring to uh, this concept, which we really don't like, uh, this idea of anti-football, uh, this idea of you know, I, I think it's a false dichotomy, this kind of an idea of positive football versus anti-football or or attacking football versus negative football. I just think it's football. But uh, nonetheless, uh, kick it off, Steve. Yeah, so you and I have had this discussion for a really long time. And, and as you referred to in that last podcast, you're a disciple of Minotti. Yeah. Um, after doing my research over the, the past week or so, I think I stand in total opposition to you <laughs> in that I, I would consider myself a disciple of Biardo. Well, well, well let, let me just make a caveat here, okay? Because I love defensive football. I actually love defenders more than I like uh, attackers. It's easy to be an attacker. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. I think it's it's much harder to be a great and graceful defender like a Paolo Maldini or Abdullio Varela. You know, these guys were phenomenally great players. Yeah, so I'm not really going to get into what we discussed too much last week because I think you did a, a really wonderful job summarizing that total football Thank maybe you. isn't uh, a Dutch concept as as most people would uh, would have you believe. And I'm going to really get into that defensive football maybe isn't an Italian concept as many people would like to believe. Thank you. Um, but like you said, we can't really describe anti-football. So anti-football, it's really just an amalgamation of a lot of different styles of football that people don't like. It's not pleasing on the eye. Right. So d defense football, sometimes even counter-attacking football can re be referred to as long ball football or direct football or even at the end of the park the bus football, as we've seen a lot of different players, managers, and just pundits refer to it as that we, we can really couch in this idea of the anti-football sentiment. So what I want to do in this segment is really dig deep into a couple of these types of football, coaches that played these themes uh, very well and applied them correctly. Because we know, you know, we always talk about like, you know, when, when you think of direct football, you think of Tony Pulis. And Tony Pulis, you know, maybe just didn't do it very well. But there are teams that play direct football and, and do it very well. But first, let's really focus on this, this notion of anti-football, where it comes from, what it is, and, and whatnot. So uh, this idea of anti-football has been used uh, in English since at least 2001, uh, it was used by Armstrong and Giulianotti in their book to describe the 1968 uh, Estudiantes uh, de la Plata from the Copa Intercontinental, uh, where they cited the use of the phrase in Argentine sports magazine El Grafico. Right. So anti-football, where I am couching it, and strictly where it, where the lexicon, when where the language starts to be used, is in Argentina. And that's where I really want to couch this discussion today. Surprise, surprise, for, I think for a lot of our listeners. So what is it exactly? So a lot of people define anti-football as like very lethargic uh, passing style of football that relies, uh, you know, actually on a lack of possession. Um, and it's an extremely defensive, aggressive, physical, robust style of play. 
where one team deploys their whole team except the striker behind the ball. Uh, in doing so, they try their best to stop the opposition from scoring rather than trying to score the goal themselves. Uh, it's also used to criticize the playing style of teams who prevent the game from moving on with actions such as kicking the ball forward without trying to reach any players, intentionally diving and stopping the play for several minutes, kicking the ball away when a free kick is awarded, uh, just, you know, essentially wasting as much time as you possibly can. Um, what I'm going to do is really dive into a different view of, of this style. Um, we've gone through Herrera already, and I think that that, you know, a lot of people would say that's anti-football. That's, that's where we find everything, but really it isn't because Herrera attacked. And yep. they, that, that Grande Inter team scored goals plenty. So really we can't say that they were they were an anti-football team because they played football. Yeah, I want to introduce something here though, okay? Before you go any further. I mean I don't think you're probably going to you're going to get to this, but the idea of anti-football being non-skilled football, I think is also a misnomer, okay? A lot of people will say that anti-football basically comes along with players who don't have the skill to go forward and attack. And I think that that's wrong. I think that that's actually wrong. I think that it takes a tremendous amount of skill to actually defend the net. And, I mean, I think that has to be introduced at this thing because at this point in the conversation, because there is a lot of teams that I think were extraordinary at defending. And that takes that is a special skill set, if you ask me. So uh, for supporters of total football, uh, there are probably many things that be, can be, you know, forgiven. Cheating, biting, lying, spitting. We know there's a bit of a history with that with total football. Well, that's gamesmanship, right? But there is one thing uh, that is inexcusable. One thing so wretched and sickening to people that it deserves no place in the game. Uh, and that one thing, the cardinal sin is the long ball, direct football. And people, yeah, people just don't like this idea of you kick and hope football. Uh, for 50 years, at least, the the English uh, suffered through watching an international team that played kick and hope consistently. Well, I still think we still see it today. I still think we still see it today. And I, I, I don't disagree, and I get into that uh, a little bit further. So there is this stigmatization of that long ball and direct football is very much an English – it is English football. And to be fair, it is part of the history. When you watch you know, England versus Scotland very early on, Scotland were the passing team, short passes trying to work the ball around, and the English would kick the ball forward and hope they scored. Um. Previous podcasts that Julie and I have done kind of prove that to be not completely accurate. Um, that being said, uh, the modern English game over at least the last 35 years shows that long ball football played a, played a very significant role in England. Uh, managers like Tony Pulis and Sam Allardyce, uh, countless others, uh, have played this tactic with really their only success remaining in the Premier League, not getting relegated. It's this idea of, well, as long as we're in the premiership, we're doing good. Exactly. But there's one manager beyond all of these managers that found success with this in England, and it's Sir Alex. Uh, when coached properly, a direct tactic resembles Manchester United in the late 1990s. 
It's exciting, it's incisive, and it is fast tempo football. Dwight York, Andy Cole seamlessly interchanging like well-oiled machinery. David Beckham and Ryan Giggs flying down the wings and whipping in crosses. And Roy Keane and Paul Scholes spraying 60-yard passes with relative ease. Almost nonchalant at that point. Or you can even think of the Dutch national team in the 1998 World Cup. Uh, Bergkamp's goal against Argentina is a perfect example of how to execute direct football when necessary. Yeah, that goal was actually a tremendous display of skill by Dennis Bergkamp, actually, the way that he pulled the ball in. So that being said, and, and Julian, I want to pose this question to you. Why do you think so many teams are bad at playing direct football? Uh, because I don't think they have a plan. So I think that's, I, I would, I would agree that that's part of it. I would say because direct football is really, you know, soaked in, in England, a lot of the, the very fine technical aspects of playing direct football were coached out of the game. There were not a lot of midfielders that could spray though. Cause you need people who can play a 60 yard pass to the foot of yeah. somebody. Because Absolutely. otherwise it doesn't work. Absolutely. And, and this is, you know, when a tactic is executed to perfection, regardless of what tactic it is, the adjectives change when you talk about the football that's being played. Very good point. Hoofing a pass up the pitch in a bad game turns into a pinging a pass when the team's playing it well. Parking the bus morphs into being incisive on the break. And boring sideways passes morph into virtuoso passing moves. That, you know, I understand this as being that when you're winning, everything looks better. The importance of duty over beauty will come further circle in this podcast. Yeah, well, you know, look, uh, it's funny you say this because I want to introduce a a very, very uh, particular match in which I watched an extraordinarily beautifully well-coached team lose a final 1-0 to a team that actually parked the bus, if you want to say, but was extremely well-disciplined. And that was the 1994 Cup Winners' Cup final between Parma versus uh, Arsenal under George Graham, which used to be known as Arsenal. And if anybody remembers that match, uh, Parma had an extraordinary team. Uh, The basic attackers at that time were were, uh, Gianfranco Zola and Faustino Espiria. And the passing that they tried, and they were frustrated time and time again by this incredibly well-coached, well-disciplined Arsenal team who ended up winning that game 1-0 on a beautiful goal scored by Alan Smith. And I think actually that is the perfect example of that kind of football, in my in my view, at, at a match level that I've ever seen. Yeah, well, and, and, you know, it speaks to this idea that total football can be abandoned at times when the situation calls for it. And that's kind of what I want to get to here just really quickly. Even Pep Guardiola knew when it was time to abandon tiki-taka and go direct, primarily when playing against Klopp's gig and press when Klopp was at uh, Borussia Dortmund and Pep was still at, at Bayern Munich, where he would go to this direct football to get the ball beyond that high press. Again, while total football might be pleasing on the eye, and at the end of the day, when it comes down to results, even the most loyal disciples of total football will abandon it in search of victory. Well, sometimes you have to, right? Sometimes you have to throw caution to the wind and just let things fly. Wayne Rooney's goal this year. 
you know, in the final dying seconds of the game, you know, with, with DC United, that pass was just, you know, he st- steals the ball uh, on a counterattack and turns up, sees a striker kind of or, or a winger coming on from the, and just launches this patent perfect pass that's basically 60 yards, essentially, lands in. And I mean, it's to me, it's one of the best goals I've ever seen, to be quite honest with you. Well, he has a history of doing that. There was yeah. the goal that uh, when he was still at Manchester United, there's a goal that Van Percy scores against Aston Villa, where Rooney hits it from half and it comes over. Van Persie's right shoulder, and Van Persie hits it on the volley with his I left. I actually remember that goal. It was a, one of the best. I think, to me, that's an almost even better expression of yeah. it. But when we talk about anti-football, there is really one team we need to focus on, and it's the 1968 team, a student of a, the team yeah. in, in Argentina. So in the early 1960s, uh, the Estadientes uh, U19 team, uh, the killer juveniles, Latakera. Yeah, La were coached by uh, by uh, a very good coach, but it, it's really when they when they end up coming all the way up to uh, be coached by Osvaldo Zubeldia, who coached them to their to their first Metropolitano Championship in 1967. Now, this is really important because they actually became the first team outside of the traditional Big Five, so Boca, River, Racing, Independiente, and San Lorenzo, to win the Metropolitano. And their success actually really opened it up for other clubs. So Vélez Sarsfeld ended up winning it in 68. And then Chacarita Jr. That's right, Chacarita. In 69, wins this title at the same time. That being said, it was their international success that really brought fame to them during this period. So they won the Copa Libertadores three years in a row from 1968 to 1970 uh, and played in the Intercontinental Cup each of those years. Uh, against Manchester United in 68, AC Milan in 69, and Feyenoord in 1970. While they lost against Milan and Feyenoord, uh, Estudiantes found success against Busby's Manchester United, winning 1-0 in Argentina, strangely played at La Bombonera, yeah. uh, and then drew 1-1 in England. Now, both teams were accused of playing incredibly rough football and you could actually say that there was more tackling than there was football. Well, in this there, game. there was a reason uh, at that time. Uh, Argentines and, and the English really did not get along because of what happened in the '66 World Cup uh, when they were referred to as animals and yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and Ratin was being uh, uh, shuttled off. Uh, so there was this real, real serious acrimony. So that kind of filtered its way also into this game, you know. So, and it's actually, it's funny. So it's set on October 16th, 1968. So this is the date of the 1-1 draw in England. Estudiantes against all odds touch the sky with their hands, covered in a brief slogan that their coach wrote on the blackboard in the visitor's locker room at Old Trafford, that glory cannot be reached by the path of roses. (laughs) That's awesome. So, but it actually turns out that this idea of anti-football comes way before then but it stays in Argentina. Uh, Zubeldia was actually a player under Victorio Spinotto at Vélez Sarsfeld, and it was here that this idea of winning at all costs was born, or at least in Argentina. In 1958, uh, we began to see the decline of La Nuestra, which can be traced to a 6-1 defeat at the hands of Czechoslovakia in the World Cup. Uh, Spinetto was brought in with two other coaches, De La Torre and Barreto, but Spinetto takes much of the credit for the move to an anti-football style in Argentina. Stressing the importance of strictly winning, 
Spinetto demanded that there was no pleasure in attractive football and only in victory is pleasure achieved. Mostly this system found itself in a modified 3-5-2. However, it would appear differently based on the state of play that was happening. And we can, we've seen this 3-5-2 be played to a very good success. Most recently, I would say, with Antonio Conte's Chelsea. Yeah. But let's return to Zubeldia and Estudiantes. So before getting into the match, that really brings it forward. And I'm talking the, inter- the, the cup final between Manchester United and, and Estudiantes. We should really review the managers and the player. So Osvaldo Zubeldi was actually a pretty decent football player. He played with the national team for a little while. But again, it was as a manager that he really made his name. And, you know, we always make the joke that it seems that mediocre football players turn into some of the best managers. Uh, his career took off with Estudiantes as manager when he was brought in to stave off relegation in 1965. They end up winning their first championship in 1967, beating Platens in the semifinal 4-3 and then Racing in the final 3-0. Uh, they finished second in the Nacional Championship, which qualified them for the 1968 Copa Libertadores. In 1968, they beat Palmeiras. In 1969, they beat Nacional of Uruguay. Great teams. And then in 1970, they beat the Peñarol team, also of Uruguay. And just uh, just, just as a point uh, to make, the uh, 69 team of Nacional and the 70 team of Peñarol uh, that was a high watermark for Uruguayan football uh, from about 66 to 72. And these were not easy teams to beat. And while they lost the uh, the Intercontinental, Intercontinental Cup finals in 69 and 70 to Milan and Feyenoord, um, they also won the Copa Interamericana yeah. in 1969. Now, did you have any – I know we talked briefly before the podcast about the, the final between Milan – and uh, Studentes, did you have comments that you wanted the to share? Thing, on the that only one? thing was that it was such a it was such a brutal match that uh, the Argentinian government, national government, actually threw several of the players in jail. And uh, Gigi Rivera, I think, uh, 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 basically the striker of the time at Italy was a very good striker. Basically, said that this was a game that should be erased from the history of football because it was just so brutal. That's. It's fair. It yeah. seems to be yeah. what came out of it. And this Estudiantes team is actually the first Argentine club team to win a game at an opposing stadium in Europe. Yeah. Because the team that played, that beat uh, Glasgow Celtic in 67. No. 67, I think it would have been. Yeah. So in 67, uh, was actually, it was one game played at a neutral venue. Whereas after yeah. that, it was a home and away. You played home and away. Um, so the players that he had in this team, I'm not going to get into all the players. There's two players that I think people, well, one, you'll recognize the name Two, Well, you'll recognize both names. The first is La Bruja or the witch, Juan Ramon Varon, father to another famous Varon that played for Estudiantes, uh, La Brujita, the little witch, Juan Sebastian Varon. And Julian, I know how much you appreciate. I love, I love Juan Sebastian Varon. Uh, to me, you know, we you gave me my top eleven just in the previous pod, and I, I, I that's like you know I actually said it off the top of my head because if I had to pick 
uh, the top 11, we would be here for months because uh, I'd have to go through at least, I, I would always end up with probably about 40 players. And one of those players is Varon. Varon to me was like the consummate midfielder. And he he went back to Estudiantes, if I remember correctly. A few times. Yeah, and, and, and won the Copa Libertadores again with them at 41 years old, I believe. Yeah, so, I mean, t- testament to what a superstar he was. Really so he's has. actually, so he works with the club now. Yeah. Um, the other player who really... Uh, takes everything on uh, is Biardo. Yeah, at this point. Yeah, and and you brought it up in the last podcast. It's it's Biard. It's always been Biardo versus Minotti in Argentina. Yeah, and you fall kind of into one uh, of those schools. So uh, to me, it's a mistake to say that this type of anti football was brawn over brain. Incredible study of tactics goes into absolutely everything, as well as the development of the offside trap, at least in Argentina at the time. It had never been seen in Argentina before, up until how uh, Zubeldia had them playing it. Um, and Zubeldia was one of the, uh, is, an, is another harken to this idea, he would change the system depending on the team that he was playing against. Uh, he would pre-plan plays direct from kickoff and put a lot of work into set pieces, which I think is another really big part of this idea of anti-football because total football was a concentration on possession, possessing the ball, moving the ball quickly, but set pieces were very important and are still very important to anti-football stylistically. Um, But, uh, you know, Biardo leaves us a quote, actually, from this 1968 Estudiantes team under Zubeldia, where he says, Zubeldia taught us that we had to win, and it remained engraved in me. He could be practicing a corner kick or a free kick for two hours. He stood in the area, raised a hand, and said, the ball must come here, and we would shoot the ball pointing at his hand. Practice did not end until we hit his hand with the ball. (laughs) So, like I said, while while Julian really got into themes of Minotti, I'm I'm gonna really couch myself in this Biardo school of of football. So Biardo was a was a, a pretty good footballer. Yeah, we can we can agree there. Uh, and was considered the inside the pitch tactician for Zubeldi and that Estudiantes side in the '60s. So he came over from Deportivo Español. Uh, he was considered kind of just a leader on the pitch, as much of the rest, as much of the team was really quite young and had just come through the academy. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, while playing football, he and teammate Raul Madero both completed their degrees in medicine, which really speaks to their dedication to a craft. Yeah. Uh, once he graduated, he retired from football and went uh, went and worked in medicine um, and, and actually played different roles uh, with the Argentine and Colombian national teams as doctors before being manager. Um, but as a player, we can see how his mind worked. Uh, and really, we look at getting under the skin of players as being this type of anti-football yeah. well, sentiment. The, you know, this is what uh, the Argentines called picadilla. You know, kind of uh, playing outside of the rules a little bit. You know, in gamesmanship, yeah. so to speak. So there are a few examples that I want to share. So it, examples include using his knowledge of gynecology to taunt Racing's uh, Roberto Perfumo about a cyst that his wife had recently had removed. This is a famous story. Uh, at another point, uh, he commented to a wrestling goalkeeper that his mother had died because he had finally chosen to marry. And this is because his mother did not want him to get married. So his mother <laughs> died like six months after uh, after this player got married. And Biardo just consistently would, would bug him with that, that point. 
while this could definitely be thought of as being unforgivable, uh, Biardo once said the match has to be won and that's the end of it. Period. Um, so after retiring as a player, uh, he takes a little bit of a break, but he becomes a Studentes coach in 1971 and gets the squad into the Copa, Li- Copa Libertadores final, but loses to that one, another one of those great Nacional sides. Yeah, from, from Montevideo, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, in 1976, he becomes manager of Colombia's Deportivo Cali. And after a two-year stint, he gets them into the finals of the Copa Libertadores again. Which is a real achievement for a Colombian team at that time. And loses the final yeah. yet again. Uh, after failing in the final, he had a short stint at uh, San Lorenzo. Uh, and then he became the Colombian national team's trainer. When the team failed to qualify for the 1982 World Cup, he was fired from his job, and he uh, he went back to Estudiantes. And this is when he enjoys more of his success. So the club was enjoying healthy finances due to the transfer of Patricio Hernandez and accommodated his request for uh, reinforcements into the squad. At uh, this time, the team makes the semifinals of the 1982 Nacional Championship and goes on to win the Metropolitano title. Um, Now, his scheme was based primarily on Zubzeldia's tactics uh, and its attacking might, fueled by players like Sabella, Trobiani, Gattardi, and Ponce. Yeah, all great names. Uh, And this earned the attention of the media and the AFA, leading to him being offered the national team coach position in Argentina. And this is really when we see Biardo, uh, Biardo's football really take hold in Argentina. Well, I mean, it's no accident that they win the World Cup with the hand of God, somebody will say, you know, yeah. some will say. So uh, he held the post uh, from 1983 until after the 1990 World Cup. Uh, under his watch, Diego Mar- Maradona probably becomes the most dominant player of his age, something that actually surprised a lot of people because they didn't think Maradona would actually fit in, in his squad. system yeah. at all. I, you know, at this point, I got to say, I, re- I really wish we had our friend Carlos here. Because uh, Carlos has an extraordinary range of, uh, of of facts and knowledge about about this period and the relationship uh, with Bijardo. But uh, please continue. This is fantastic. Right. So a feature of this side was they looked to do as minimal as possible. <laughs> well, they had Maradona too, right? Yeah. Uh, and they could look incredibly poor in doing so, but they would still get results. Yeah. Uh, and that, of course, is because all that mattered to Biardo was was winning. Yeah. Uh, of course, this also meant that gamesmanship was part of the tactics. And as you just brought up, we can point to Maradona's hand of God goal, something that, you know, probably deserves its own podcast in its own right. Well, there's a fantastic Argentinian pod on Argentinian football. Um, actually, it's two English guys who do Argentinian football. I highly recommend it. It's, refer- it's called The Hand of Pod. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think we. But then you know, while he does score that hand of God goal, also scores probably one of the greatest goals ever scored in the history of yeah. the World Cup. I just want to comment on that. Like you know, it's funny that 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 Maradona wins the World Cup with perhaps one of the more defensive-minded coaches you know that Argentina has ever seen in Biardo. But I mean. That's precisely the way the team was caged, right? They had like some extraordinary, extraordinary defenders. And the one that always comes to mind is Passarella. Passarella was a monster in the back, okay? And then you had this team with just a supporting cast around Diego, 
which you know, how could you not win? You know, and and I actually, uh, I I uh, I think that that was the greatest final of the World Cup ever played. In my opinion, was 1986. It's a tremendous match. So we're now going to jump to Estudiantes in the 90s to probably the greatest contemporary of Biardo. Uh, and that's El Cholo, Diego Simeone. Yeah. And I think he's probably your favorite manager out there right now. Oh, man. I, I, this is, to me, uh, his uh, work ethic and what he expects of his players is just incredible. I, I really wish he was coaching my club. I, I wouldn't disagree with yeah. that. Um, I want to add here. So while Minotti's football was pleasing on the eye, and it worked for a time, None of his real contemporaries in Argentina really were able to find the level of success that Alcholo has using Biardo's tactics. Yeah, fair. You look at La Volpe, Gallardo, Peckerman, and Sanzini, really they, nothing. Not nothing. Well, Gallardo is on the verge, as maybe we speak, of winning the Copa Libertadores of the River. And he's actually done a marvelous job at turning River around. But, I mean, can he leave Argentina and do what, what, what Cholo has done? You know what I mean? And, sir, and Peckerman has had international success. success. I will give him credit. But it's no. trophies, right? Yeah. It's championships. Trophies are best. Trophies, trophies and championships. And uh, uh, Simeone can claim them in, uh, in, uh, in Argentina and in Spain. You yeah. know? Uh, that being said, there are a lot of people that argue that El Cholo actually is more Menotti and Bielsa than he is Biardo. Well, yeah, I'm going to leave that for everybody else because we can go on for days about this. And what surprises me, uh, you're against the heresy of the run. You, I hate track star football players. Yeah, and and Biardo actually has been like very adamant in the exact same camp. Yeah. So something that surprised me in, in the research on this piece was like, hmm, so Julian's very much in the school of Minotti, but definitely shares some of the feelings that, that about football that Biardo had. Well, I, I think Minotti would share the same feelings if we had him here and we could actually question him. And I think a lot of these coaches would say that, I mean, look. Do you I think mean, he would agree with Biardo on something? I think he would choose to just disagree. I just on think him. just naturally those two guys would disagree because they don't like, he, I, I, like he, they have like, you know, it's egos involved, right? I mean, I bet you, you know, they both have a World Cup. Uh, they both have, uh, have had success. I just think they, they would just disagree because they like to disagree. But, you know, I think that they would find agreement on this idea of, of track star football. I mean, we talked about this today. I mean, take the player Leroy Sané, okay? Leroy Sané to me is the worst kind of football player I, I've ever seen. I mean, just a guy who can run fast, has some dribbling skills, and that's it. I mean, you know, these, you know, uh, even the total football players, right? They were not track stars. Uh, they ran, but they had skill and they had intelligence. You know, they made things happen. They created stuff out of nothing. Um, the, foot, the modern footballer today, in the modern version of Tiki Taka, which is something we will talk about in the in the new year when we talk about Pep um, and, and Pep versus Mourinho, which I think is actually the, the the manifestation of what we're talking about. This kind of like dichotomy. I, I, I just don't. I don't like. I mean, I love watching Manchester City, okay? And I love David Silva. I love Bernardo Silva. I like De Bruyne. But most of those players are just fast track star runners, you know? 
Uh, no disagreement here, but I think what this leads us to is what of Bielsa, yeah. right? Oh, seemingly with feet in both worlds, yet really not existing in either of them at the same time. Or maybe this is something we'll need to take the time to examine him just by himself. Well, because... I mean, Bielsa, El Moco is, is really weird to peg in all of this, right? Because I don't think he's afraid of just using whatever style he has and to, to incorporate into his system. Uh, his system is, is it, 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 it attacks with lightning speed and he'll use the long ball. And at the same time, this defense is like rock solid. And but he'll also go to the short pass game. Exactly. Total football yeah. Well. And he'll close, he'll, he'll, he'll close the other team down if he has to, you know what I mean? So he, he seems to like, you know, he's not afraid of using whatever is, whatever is necessary. So really what this has come down to is like a pragmatism versus idealism. I think that's perfect. Anti-football versus La Nuestra. Yeah. Anti-football versus total football. Biardo versus Minotti. It's kind of funny that we've ended up couching these discussions in Argentina more than anything. Well, I mean... Uh, and maybe it's because of that like very hard switch. Perhaps I think that the view that people have of Argentine football is that it's all attacking and it's like this kind of beautiful game at its finest and so on and so forth. But I think if you delve into the history of Argentina, Argentinian football, which I think everybody should, is it's perhaps one of the richest uh, cross sections of all different types of styles, all different types of tactics, all different types of antics. Uh, and I think it, it, it's all, I mean, I, I think it's something that, 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 um, makes this sport so unique. There isn't anything like it. Um, there was just one thing I would like to say about this thing, okay? This idea of pragmatism versus idealism. And I want to go back to the, the match that we watched today between Chelsea and uh, uh, Manchester, Manchester City. City. And Danny Dicchio, at the end, you know, criticized, sorry, for playing a little bit on the negative side. In the first half, yeah. Yeah. But they won 2 nothing, And they actually, in my opinion, really outclassed Manchester City. So how could you be negative and win 2 nothing? Winning is all that's important. You you know how I feel about this. Yeah. At the end of the day, winning is now, of course, we still think Manchester City is going to win everything. But at the end of the day, what this argument in its most contemporary form is, is comes down to Mourinho versus Guardiola. Yeah. And when we come back in the new year, that's going to be the premise of like the first, the first and the first and last real piece in this series of yeah. like the cult of the manager, because we're not going to get into just their tactics. We're going to get into their minds right. a little bit. And we've, you know, Mourinho's outbursts definitely make him the, you know, he ref as you hate that he referred to himself as the special one. Yeah. But Guardiola has a little bit of a he's, he's, he's sinister a mind to him as well that I think we need to dive into. And he's a bit of a prima donna too. So we'll get into yeah. that. I just want to make one of the last point. There, there is something that we kind of deliberately avoided here today. And I think, Steve, by the way, marvelous job. Uh, I took my hat to you. Um, we kind of – there's two signature matches, I think, that we kind of – and we're probably going to talk about it in a different pod with uh, one of our friends from Down Under. 
Um, but two matches that really should be given special mention here, but we're saving it for something else, is the 1970 World Cup final between Italy and Brazil and Mexico, where you saw the probably like one of the greatest, if not the greatest attacking football team, the 1970 side with Pelé, Rivellino, Carlos Alberto, and the defensive, like full-on hardcore defensive side of the Italian team and the contrasting styles. But there are a few caveats that need to be made about that. Well, you actually made a joke. To, you, you told me a joke a couple of days ago about uh, being at the Caruso Club and seeing some of these games. And someone came up to you and said, Something along the lines of, you just feel like Italy loves to be in this type of position. Yeah, they just love it. They, they, that was the twenty. That was the two thousand Euro uh, Euro Cup uh, semi final between the Netherlands and I, I. I literally, I think the Netherlands hit the post and the crossbar something like five or six times, and the Italians just enjoyed sitting back, went to penalty kicks, and the, just and then and then they won. Um, that being said, uh, there, there's a second match, and I think that this match though. You know, uh, Jonathan Wilson wrote a fantastic article in The Guardian several years ago now called The Day That Naivety Died in Football. And that was when the counterattacking, and this goes back to you, right? Because everybody referred to that 1982 team that uh, of Italy winning the World Cup as pure catenaccio. But that team was lightning fast in attacking. And, and the match I'm talking about was the, the match in the, in the second group stage because it was a weird World Cup. They had two different groups when Italy beat Brazil 3-2. And that was Tele Santana's team who was all about winning, but not winning ugly, winning beautifully. And the Italians, pull, uh, they did a number on them. And uh, we're actually going to devote a special pod to this. Uh, and uh, we're really looking forward to having that discussion. Yeah, well, and there was definitely a reason for me avoiding the European yeah. side to it, because I think we get into it a lot. We could have gone further, but really we see the Europeanization of this in the most in the contemporary forms, especially with Mourinho's success. Although you can also say Conte's success with Juventus, although, again, gamesmanship definitely... Yeah comes into well, play there. Don't forget, Conte fixed matches too, yeah. right? <laughs> well, yeah. but I'm sorry. You, you know, uh, uh, I even have trouble forgiving Paolo Rossi for this, okay? And Paolo Rossi, you know, essentially delivered a World Cup to Italy. And uh, But, you know, when you fix matches, that's the ultimate game sentience, right? So, but this was fantastic, Steve. Uh, I, I really think that this is... Uh, really building a, quite a, a, a rich kind of discussion. And I like that we are becoming more and more students of this game. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, we are we're consistently learning. Um, so what, what we pose to you, uh, our listeners now, is uh, for the new year, please, uh, more ideas, stuff you want to hear us talk about, do more research into, something that you are interested in, but you don't really – you know, you don't dig into it yourself and you really just want to hear the soothing tones of me and Julian present it when we speak. I don't know if we, if my, I don't know if my voice is exactly soothing. Well, <laughs> people are listening. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, there, there's just uh, one thing I wanted just to say before we go off for the holidays. Um, we have some really good pods coming up. As you know, we're going to be doing this thing about Pep versus Mourinho. We're going to have a, a, a an exceptional, uh, discussion on women and football that's going to be coming up. Uh, um, our, our friend Bridget Ward is going to be leading that discussion. We're also going to be doing uh, a special pod on 
the king, Mr. Eric Cantona. Uh, we will be doing one on that famous match between Brazil and uh, Italy in 1982. And we have a, we're going to have a very, very special guest and a personal friend of ours who is probably uh, one of the sharpest and most intelligent football scholars out there. And uh, we really look forward to bringing you this stuff. And uh, we have a lot more planned beyond that. Uh, follow us on Twitter, please. Tell your friends ab about, about our pod. We really want to make this participatory. We have a lot of people that are from our hive mind that we are going to be kind of introducing and uh, having on here. So um, we have a lot of exciting things planned for the new year. Hope you have a wonderful holiday, Steve. Have a great holiday. Yep. I will see well. you in about three weeks. And I, I'm going to leave off. There is a because you mentioned King Cantona, and we are we're coming into the holidays. Uh, as we sign off today, uh, please enjoy Old Trafford singing the Twelve Cantonas of Christmas. <laughs> Take care.